Let's pray together. We pray that out of the many words sung and spoken, read and heard, that the one word, the eternal word, might break forth among the community of faith this day and empower us to be the boys and girls, the men and women you are calling us to be now and always through Christ. Amen. One of the realities of being a pastor in a same, the same pulpit for 18 years is that you end up sort of admitting or telling stories on yourself that are uh, more than awkward and embarrassing. And I'm sure on more than one occasion I've said a few things that have embarrassed my wife. And so on this Mother's Day I've decided not to do that. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> but I do want to make an admission or name an awkwardness I feel as I've thought about the sermon for this week, and that is how weird it is for me, a minister, to find such an aversion, almost like fingernails on the chalkboard, when someone says the phrase, God loves you. Now, maybe I have post-traumatic stress disorder, because when I was a young minister, was the, there was this man by the name of Jim Baker. He was a televangelist who used to get on the uh, nightline and say, Ted, God loves you. And it just was so greasy and nasty that, that I just didn't want anything to do with that. And here I am preparing for the ministry. Or it may be because early in my ministry, uh, or early in my uh, Christian walk, I was handed this track and said, here's how you lead people to Jesus. These four laws, you give them to them. And number one law was, God loves you, which sounds good. But it was always kind of a setup to make sure that people knew that they were bad. And if they would believe this formula, they could go to heaven. For me, it feels too often like the phrase, God loves you presumes too much or describes too little or implies that it is everything you need to know. So on the one hand, this aversion. And on the other hand, this realization that the phrase God loves you is so foundational, so essential. The scriptures tell us that this love of God is the originating love. And without it, we really can't know life, we can't know ourselves, and we sure can't know our neighbors. The problem may be that each word in the phrase, God loves you, is reduced or pinched or overused. It's become threadbare. God. What do we mean when we talk about the originating dynamism, this energy that has this intention toward love and intimacy that makes life more than just robotic. It makes life animated and alive. God loves. Scott Peck says love's not a feeling. It's not fickle. It's an emotion. It's, it's, it's a commitment that says I will will the spiritual growth of another person. That's what God does. Loves you. Not the false you, not the self you, not the presumed you that we fabricate and present to each other. Certainly not the, the church you, you know, the one who gets dressed up and looks good but was yelling at your kids on the way to church this morning. You know who you are. Um, <clears throat> but the real you. The you that only you and God know. That's the you God loves.
God loves you is not about information. It's not about coming to church on Sunday and having the pastor say it in such a way that all of a sudden you get it in in your head. It's not about information. It's about an experience, an encounter. In other words, I can't tell it to you so you'll get it and agree with it, like, but rather it's like a discovery that awakens a new self-understanding, a new understanding of the world. I've used this image before. It's like a whole new operating system. It changes how you do things. For me, this awakening has not been just a one-time experience. It happens again and again. When I'm interrupted by the claim that the creator knows me and loves me and says not just that I'm loved, but that I am just by virtue of my birth. And you are, just by virtue of your birth, an offspring of God. Think about that. On this Mother's Day, you're not only the offspring of your mother, you are an offspring of God. Or as it says in the book of Genesis, you're made in the image of God. So if, as the movie title implies, the the devil wears Prada, that superficial, temporary, subjective Italian fashion, if the devil wears Prada, then the sacred wears skin. Your skin. My skin. Every life, every person in your family. Freddie Gray, all the people of the world. But not just the people we love, but also Those people, whoever those people are for you, the rioters or the prisoners or the addicts or the terrorists or the haters of the world, the sacred is in their skin, in their life too. Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, says, Every being in the universe is an expression of the Tao or God. Every being is an expression of God. Most people can't go there. They sure can't go there with their enemies. There is no God in them. They are evil, wrong, and bad, we tend to say. But the reality is that many of us can't go there even with ourselves, with our true selves. We just cannot conceive of the possibility that we bear within us the very image and personality of God. In fact, it feels to me like one of the first tasks of the church is to create those ways where we can awaken ourselves and others to this originating love because, frankly, it's an uphill battle. Years of shame and guilt and secret sins have convinced a great many of us that while this sounds good in theory, it doesn't apply to us personally, that we have somehow disqualified ourselves from thinking of ourselves as children, offsprings of God. In fact, I want to suggest this is the very reason Jesus Christ came into the world to awaken people, to awaken these God institutions, the temple then, the church now, that love this notion of God, but somehow in ordering it and building walls around it, we have calcified it to the point that we miss the whole idea altogether.
The work of the church is to awaken our imagination so that we might actually see more and discover more about what God is doing in our lives. Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And that is certainly true in the life of faith. I'm reading right now a novel by Sue Monk Kidd entitled The Invention of Wings. It's a hard book for me to read, wonderfully written. It it is written in two voices. One is the voice of a slave girl in the early 1800s in Charleston, South Carolina. She goes by the nickname of Handful. The other voice is the 12-year-old girl who now owns her on her birthday, is given Handful on her birthday. Her name is Sarah. Sarah is the daughter of a, a prominent judge in Charleston who opposes slavery who wants to give the girl back or set her free, but she can. And so these two girls, one a slave girl, one the daughter of the plantation owner, grow up together. In the scene I'm thinking of, Sarah and her family have gone off to the family plantation for the summer. They announce to the slaves who remain in Charleston, we'll be home at a certain date, but they end up coming home several weeks early. The slaves aren't prepared for them necessarily. And when Sarah goes up to her room, she finds that handful, her slave girl, has rolled into Sarah's bedroom this new contraption that the family's just purchased. It's a copper bathtub. And she's filled it with water, and she's sitting in the bathtub. As Sarah and handful look at each other, they're both paralyzed by the implications of of what Handful has done by stepping into this bathtub that's owned by her masters. How could she possibly do such a thing? And Handful knows immediately that this could be a huge challenge. As they try together to get rid of the evidence, to, to roll the bathtub over to the balcony so that they can dump the water out before Sarah's mother finds out what has happened, Handful says to Sarah, I know know you're angry with me, Sarah, but I didn't see any harm in me being in the bathtub just like you. And Sarah notes to herself that for the first time, she's been called Sarah, not Miss Sarah. She writes, Handful had the look of someone who had declared herself. And seeing it, my indignation collapsed and her mutinous bath turned into something else entirely. She had immersed herself in forbidden privileges, yes, but mostly in the belief that she was worthy of these privileges. What she'd done was not revolt, it was baptism. She came to the realization of who she was, a child of God, equal to this girl she has to call master. She saw herself anew, and as a result, Sarah was able to see her anew. Richard Rohr says that without this seismic shift in consciousness, this seismic shift in consciousness, you and I are stuck in this fearful, walled-up way of thinking. But if we can discover our place in God, 
our place in the family of God, that you are a beloved child of God, well, then everything opens up. Everything makes sense. You begin to participate in this life, in God, and you're able to do, as we said at the beginning of the hour, to praise God. It makes sense that the, the, the seas roar and the mountains clap their hands and these things happen that are extraordinary because we see life differently. We see ourselves differently. Things like success and survival, good things, just aren't as important anymore because we're no longer living a small life, a life that's just onto ourselves. And it's certainly not all up in our heads. It's changed everything of who we are. I think of this originating love of God and its capacity to transform people. As I hear Nina recall this story from the book of Acts about the early church, these Jewish believers in Christ, who are now confronted with this man named Cornelius. Cornelius would have been part of what for them would have been called the axis of evil. He was a Roman imperial officer. He was the enemy. He was the impressor. He was the hated one. How could they love and welcome him? How could they believe that God loved him as much as God loved them? How could the Spirit come on him as the Spirit had come on them? And the answer is, you can't pull this off. You can't pull this off then or now in old ways of thinking. It takes this originating love of God to do as Jesus said, make all things possible, to ask whatever you want and it will be done. Why? Because you're in a different zone. You see that the sacred wears skin and that God is present in all people. And it makes sense why the psalmist would say, when God comes, God comes with justice for all people. Any other God is not God at all. Abba Arsenius, one of the desert fathers, saw this truth. One day, walking along the city streets, he saw an old Egyptian monk and stopped him and began to talk to him about his own thoughts on the deeper things in life. One of the Abba's students afterwards stopped him and said, Abba Arsenius, how is it that you, with all of your knowledge of Latin and Greek, ask this peasant about his thoughts? Oh, said the father, I have been taught in Latin and Greek. But the truth is, I don't even know the alphabet of this peasant. I have a lot to learn. Will Campbell is another one who saw the world differently because of his primal orientation out of the love of God. Born and raised in Mississippi, Raised a Baptist, a smart, educated man. Uh, Campbell was able to go to Yale Divinity School. Got a great seminary training. Was primed to go to any church he chose. But instead chose to return to his south. And to be part of the civil rights work. 
behind the scenes during the 1960s and 70s. To some of his white church friends, Campbell was to them a traitor. To others, he was kind of a a hero. But he always had a way of throwing people off because just when you thought you knew what Campbell stood for, he would turn the other direction. He was a champion of those who were oppressed. But lo and behold, he also became members, friends with members of the Ku Klux Klan, that notorious symbol of racial terrorism. Will, why would you do such a thing? Campbell would quote from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. And then he would ask the question, who is the least of these to me? Who do I think the least of? Who do I like the most? Because that's who Jesus would identify with. This is incarnational transformational love. And we have no way of knowing, there are no records to prove, how the world is changed in invisible and unnoticed ways by people who live out of the love of God and see the world differently. Dave and Sarah Halter are making their way soon to the African nation of Tanzania. By any normal metric, this couple's kind of crazy, frankly. They are two highly trained, very gregarious, intelligent, charismatic people who could earn all kinds of money here in the United States. They're leaving that money. They're leaving the culture they've been raised in. They're leaving the conveniences of this culture. And they're leaving their families to go to another part of the world. But here's what you need to know about them. They're not going because they want to be heroes. And they sure aren't going as martyrs. If you've been around Dave and Sarah and their children, one thing you notice is their smile. They're going with joy. They're following their call. They're not trying to be super Christians. Here's what's happened to them. They experienced the love of God in a deep and profound way. It's awakened something in them. So that when they heard the reality that for every 300,000 people in Tanzania, there's one surgeon. That would be like two and a half surgeons for the whole city of Louisville. They said, this is the shape of our obedience. This is our call. We see the sacred even in the black skin of the men and women, the boys and girls of Tanzania, and we are called. This morning as we come to this table, may we experience the love of God again. You may not be called to Tanzania But every one of us are called to see the sacred in the skin of every other person and to be part of God's great transformation. We'll pray it in a second. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, where? On earth as in heaven. Come to this table this morning. 
It is Christ's table, all who are hungry. For the love of God revealed in Jesus, come and eat freely from this table. Let's now make preparation to come as we turn to friends and strangers around us and say these words, may the peace of Christ be with you and also with you.